those of you who don't know the story of Jekyll and Hyde, it was a 19th century short novel that highlighted the theme of hypocrisy. And so the story actually focuses on a lawyer named John Utterson. And John sees a man named Mr. Hyde just doing heinous, terrible crimes. And then he later sees the next day in this instance a man named Dr. Jekyll paying off the debts and righting all the wrongs of Mr. Hyde. And so this guy, this lawyer, John, he's thinking, who in their right mind would right all the wrongs of somebody? Uh, this, is, this is strange. I need to look into this more. Well, this leads to the reality that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are actually the same person. And he was dealing with the evil inside of himself, so he created a potion to separate the evil from the good. So what it did was it made a, a good person in Dr. Jekyll and then a fully evil person in Mr. Hyde. So he had this potion. He would go in and out of these different personalities well, eventually the potion was no longer needed, and he would just switch involuntarily between Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Eventually, this led to his own demise, and hypocrisy so often leads to our own demise, and that's what we'll talk about today. But the word hypocrisy can be defined as your beliefs, your moral values, what you say, not lining up with your actions and what you do. So it's, it's simple, but it's something that we all do, right? Does everyone been hypocritical at once in their life? Can I get a hand? Okay, so everyone has been hypocritical. That makes you feel better. Mine started at a very young age, probably earlier than I remember. But when I was four years old, I received the title or was bestowed the title of Bible man. <laughs> Bible man, yes. I would say I earned it, but no, I was given the title Bible man. When I was four, I had this little children's Bible that was all illustrated. And so it had these beautiful pictures. I don't even think I liked reading the actual Bible. I just liked the pictures and flipping through. I didn't, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't say that. But when I was four, I think that was the truth. So I, lo I love looking through this children's Bible, this book. Well, my dad and my mom, to kind of have fun with me, they would quiz me and kind of have Bible trivia after we read the stories to help me remember things. Well, I enjoyed it so much and was fairly decent at it that my dad thought, let's take this show on the road. And let's do it in front of our whole church. Now, again, I grew up in a Methodist church, about 350 people. And so when I was four, I went down front at my Methodist church, and my dad quizzed me on Bible questions, and I would answer them. And when I got it right, the whole church would go, ding, ding, ding. And I don't know what it was, but that was like my glory moment. Like, <laughs> yes, ding, ding, ding. I got it right. Everyone loves me, you know, four years old. So that's Bible man at age four. I, I think in my heart, there really was a pure joy in reading the Bible and having the tribute questions. Fast forward to when I was seven, really grown up at this point. In my Methodist church, we had a children's choir, and I was a part of the children's choir. Now, the goal of the children's choir is not to become the, chamber, the boys' chamber choir from London. It's just to look cute. That's your only goal, right? So you have the hand signs and do the moves when you sing, you know. Well, when I was seven, I decided that Children's choir was no longer cool for a seven-year-old. So Bible man is in these rehearsals, right? He is practicing for the two or three Sundays where you perform in front of the whole church. Well, the Sunday arrives where we're going to perform, and you usher all the kids in the front. You know, they stand on the stairs. You got some sitting. And I was kind of tall for a seven-year-old, I guess, so I was in the back. Just my face was visible to everyone, right? And so, again, the parents are lining up with their cameras, and, their, you know, this was before we had iPhones, so they actually had, like, the huge cameras, and they're, like, rolling the tape, you know, <laughs> recording this. And everyone is smiling. They've practiced and singing the song, and once we start, I just stand in the back, 
And I start mean mugging the whole congregation. Just like this. Just showing my hate for what I'm doing on my face. This is Bible man. <laughs> Bible man is, what is he doing? Bible man, four-year-old was in front of the church. Give me some ding-ding-dings, I'll smile. But when I'm singing, and this is really ironic, right? I just, okay. But mean mugging the whole congregation, just looking so stern, not happy. We finish the song, we walk off. And for, to make a long story short, my parents strongly encouraged me, strongly encouraged me to be like the four-year-old Bible man and not the seven-year-old Bible man. They, they, I won't say what they said exactly. It wasn't anything terrible, but I just remember, never will I ever make a mean face in front of the whole church in my children's choir. So the next performance, I'm up there, you know, doing all the faces, right, doing my thing. So even as a child, hypocrisy was in me from a four- to seven-year-old Bible man not showing what he had been quizzed on when he was four years old. So we all struggle with hypocrisy, even as kids. And so we're going to read a passage from Scripture from the book of James that talks about hypocritical living and as Christians what we are supposed to live like. And before we hop into the Scripture and before I pray, I want to give us some context to what we're about to read. I think context really opens up the Bible for us to understand it better. So the book of James is actually the oldest and the first written New Testament book, written between 43 and 48 A.D., um, which is pretty neat because Jesus was supposedly crucified in 33 AD. So only 10 years later, you have James, actually his brother, writing this story. Now, I don't know about you, but 10 years back, I can actually remember pretty well. So I think we can, James has probably a pretty good memory of what happened with Jesus. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about James, Jesus' brother, is that he did not believe in Jesus when he was on the earth. So it makes sense to me, if my brother or sister, but brother in this case, claimed to be the son of God, I'd be like, what? no, you're the son of Joseph. Like, my dad, hello, we're brothers. You're not the son of God, right? And so his brothers, they, they, they think they understand Jesus' mission. So I love this. In, in John chapter 7, this won't be on the screen, but I'll give you the, the scripture in a second. In John chapter 7, his brothers actually try to give Jesus advice on what to do and how to become a better public figure. And so they talked to Jesus, Jesus, you know, we're, we're in Galilee, you know, it's kind of like small town USA. If you really want to make it, LA is where it's at, let's go to West Coast, you know, so let's go to Jerusalem where you actually get noticed. You know that water to wine thing that you do? Hey, cash money, let's cash that in, let's do it in Jerusalem, you'll be fine. So they think Jesus' mission is to become famous and be known by everyone, but that obviously was not his main purpose in coming, as we know, we'll talk more about in a second. But John 7, 5 says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So we have a scripture giving us that picture. Well, we're about to read the book of James from the Bible. So something obviously changed for James. We read in scripture in 1 Corinthians that Jesus first appeared to James and then his disciples after he had risen from the dead. So we're given a glimpse that Jesus actually first visited his brother once he had risen to say, hey, I am who I said I was. And James obviously has a revelation that Jesus, okay, wow, my bro, if my brother raised from the dead and appeared to me, that would do something for me too. You know, he has this revelation that Jesus is who he says he was. And this is what's been really encouraging me this week. James saw Jesus in cloth diapers, toddler robes, preteen years, teen years, adult life. 
he saw everything that Jesus did as a brother. I think in my, I have two sisters. I know almost everything they did, even though I'm younger than they are. Jesus claimed to be the perfect son of God who lived a sinless life and then would raise back to life, right? So Jesus appears to James, raised back to life. One thing confirmed. But then James, I'm sure, thought back to every single memory he had of Jesus as his brother. You know what he found? No sin. Isn't that amazing? His own brother who saw his whole life did not find any sin in Jesus. And I believe that is what pushed him over the top. If your brother appearing to you raised from the dead is not enough, that pushed him over the top to believe in Jesus. And so James becomes a leader in the church as attested to by the Apostle Paul. He becomes the leader of the Jerusalem Council and he becomes a local pastor of what I like to think was High Point in Jerusalem. So, I mean, they do have some high points there, so I really think that could have been the name. I'm going to ask James when I see him. But he's a local pastor, and he is a very practical man. So the, what we're about to read today is very practical and very applicable for us as a church. So he's writing to the church at large in this letter, but that means he's writing to us as well. So I'm going to pray for us. That is the context of the story. Then I'm going to read this passage, and we'll go from there. Sound good? Awesome. God, thank you so much that you are a good father. Even as Katie said, God, you are a good father. And God, I pray today that as I share, God, as I, I talk probably more so to myself than anyone else, that your words would be my words. Holy Spirit, that you would speak through me, that you would open up your word to us and help us understand more of your complex, infinite love that you pour out over us every single moment of every day. God, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you for who you are, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna be in James chapter two. We're gonna read 13 verses, so bear with me, but we'll start in verse 14. All right, here we go. James two fourteen through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. I love that. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for, the, for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So we have James here talking about hypocrisy of faith, right? So again, we believe something, but our actions do not line up with it. James wants us to understand what the heart of faith is, what a heart of faith is. 
And so that's what I've titled my talk today, A Heart of Faith. What does it look like to have a true heart of faith? So we're literally just going to go through the scripture. I'm going to break it down for us, try to communicate what I think James was trying to say to us, and then make it applicable to our current day and age and our current lives. So my first point, if you're taking notes, you can follow along with this, but we are to have faith demonstrated by deed. We are to have faith demonstrated by deed. Not a very profound point, but it is true. We are to have faith demonstrated by deed. So James starts out in verse 14 with two rhetorical questions. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? It's no good. Can such a faith save him? No. So he gives us these, this setup for his, his, his talk, his passage here. Then he continues in verse 15 and 16. And he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? That would be like, let's say I'm eating lunch at a restaurant. You know, it's, it's, we're at, I like Matteo's, so I'm at Matteo's eating some pizza. Yeah, come on, Matteo's. Um, I just, I finish up, I pay for my, for my food and everything. I'm leaving and let's say I'm walking to a very important ministry meeting because ministry meetings are the most important things, right? But I see Katie here has a, rolled her ankle on doing a backflip off the curb because she just does that for fun, right? <laughs> and so I see Katie, I, I cannot believe you're, oh my, that looks terrible. It really does. Oh, God, it must hurt. You know what, I'm, I got a meeting to go to, but I'm gonna be praying for you on the way. I, I really, I, I'm gonna be praying for you. I'm so, that looks terrible. It just looks terrible. But then I forget my wallet. So I go, oh, gosh, I forgot my wallet. Hey, Matty. Hey, Matt. Ciao, Matty. Oh, okay. Wallet. Katie, I'm still praying for you. I really got an important meeting to go to, right? That is ridiculous. Our faith, I should stop what I'm doing, get down on my knee, tend to her ankle, carry her to the car, drive to the ER, and tend to her needs, right? James is saying the same thing. We have to put our faith into action, and sometimes that means giving up something we're going to to tend to what is in front of us. James drives the point home in verse 17. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And that word dead in the Greek can actually be translated as useless. So faith without deed is actually useless. There's no point to it. Jason Hubbard, who spoke last week, one of our associate pastors, he sent me a quote uh, as I was preparing for the message this week. And I, I, I love it. I want to read it to you guys. It's, by, uh, it's from a man named Brennan Manning, who's an author. It's about atheism in the world today. And he says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The greatest cause of atheism is Christians. How ironic is that, right? We claim to profess Jesus and live for him, but in our hypocrisy, our Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hydeness, we walk out the door and do nothing about it. That has to change. And that's what James is encouraging us here to do. Faith without deed is useless. Let's demonstrate our faith by what we do. So that brings me to my next point. Belief and action in and of themselves are not enough. Belief and action in and of themselves are not enough. 
And we get this from verse 18 and 19. And you can read these verses two different ways, so I'm going to cover both of them. What scholars say you could, you could glean from them. But the first is James is introducing a hypothetical person in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. And we have James's remarks. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. So what we see here is this, this hypothetical person is saying in this instance, in this reading of it, you have faith, I have deeds. There's faith Christians and there's deed Christians, right? Your faith, my faith is just a personal faith, right? I don't know if you've heard anyone say that. I actually may have said that myself, so there we go. But my faith is a personal faith. Oh, well, my faith is in everything that I do. He's like, no, that's not how it works. There's not a faith Christian and a deed Christian. It is one and the same. I'll show you my faith by what I do. For even the demons believe in God and actually the power of God, and it causes them to shudder. Isn't it amazing that demons actually may have a better understanding of the power of God than we do as Christians? That has to change too. I love this quote from one of my commentaries. I have these big, you know, these big books that make me feel smart when I study. Um, and this, this quote is from one of my commentaries. It says, the true seed of serving faith is verified by the tangible fruit, uh, excuse me, the true seed of saving faith is verified by the tangible fruit of serving faith. The true seed of saving faith is verified by the tangible fruit of serving faith. So we are saved by grace. We have faith in that. And then that causes us to do things and ultimately to serve people. You can also read verse 18 and 19 a little differently. So in the original Greek, there was, there was no punctuation. There's no quotation marks, right? So we try the best we can to update it and get things correctly. But some scholars believe that verse 18 and 19 are all coming from the mouth of the hypothetical person. So it would go like this. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So if this was all encapsulated in the hypothetical man's voice and from his point of view, he would be emphasizing the fact that deeds are everything. You know, you have faith, I have deeds. Deeds are what's important. Show me your faith by what, by, show me your faith without deed, I'll show you by what I do. He's emphasizing the doing. But I believe James is, is, is here saying we can't overemphasize action because action in and of himself is not enough. You have to have belief and action. And a group of people that got this very wrong and abided by this perspective was the Pharisees. They believed everything they did, their external appearance, their actions, justified them before God, but their hearts had no faith, had no relationship with God. They believed that if they gave to the poor, if they went to the synagogue on the designated days, that then they were holy. They were worried about the external appearance, but Jesus spent the most time actually correcting them and getting them in line with the heart of worship to God. There's a scripture from the Old Testament that I love. It's from 1 Samuel 16, 7. And it says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this was in context to the prophet Samuel was going to anoint a future king of Israel. So he was coming to this man named Jesse to look at his sons. And he comes to the first son, Eliab. And Eliab is a jack dude, does CrossFit all the time. He is a handsome, this is definitely the future king. And God says, I don't look at the things that you look at. I look at the heart. Go get the shepherd boy who's not here. I'm going to anoint him king. 
And then we have King David. Just amazing. So God, he knows the hearts of all people, and he is searching for something. God is searching for genuine hearts of faith, genuine hearts of faith. And what a genuine heart of faith leads to is always action and obedience. A genuine heart of faith always leads to action. So that brings me to my third point. God wants us to trust him through a heart of faith and a life of obedience. God wants us to trust him through a heart of faith and a life of obedience. So we have verse 20, you foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So he's repeating that again. And then verse 21, we'll break this, this, these three verses down. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So this, this scripture that's being emphasized here is from the Old Testament. It's about Abraham, we just read about. And Abraham receives a promise from God that he will be born a son, but Abraham receives this promise at age 80. I repeat, age 80. I don't know about you, but if I received that from God, I would be like, I'm 80 years old, dude. I don't know what you're thinking, man. <laughs> you know. But Abraham, in his faith, believed God, and he waited 20 years to see this promise fulfilled. How many, how many guys are waiting on something? Not even from God, just waiting on something, right? I have never waited 20 years for anything. I can't imagine the pain that Abraham was going through. But after 20 years, when Abraham is a hundo, a hundred years old, he has a son. He and Sarah have a son, and they named his son Isaac. God then asks Isaac, I mean, asks Abraham, excuse me, will you give me Isaac as a sacrifice? Abraham's like, what? You just, I waited 20 years for this, and now you want to, but we read the scripture, Abraham complies. The next morning, he goes to the top of a mountain, lays out some sticks, puts his son on the sticks, and is about to kill his own son and then burn it as an offering to God. And an angel of the Lord calls out, Abraham, Abraham, stop. You don't have to do this. God has provided another lamb for you. And a lamb comes from around the corner, and he sacrifices that instead. Now, ultimately, this is a picture of what God has done for us in Jesus. We deserved death. We deserved that, but God sent another lamb in Jesus to take our place. But I could go on that for days, so we'll leave, we'll leave that there. We'll focus on, on the point. But Abraham was justified by both his faith and in his radical action, not just faith alone, as the scripture tells us. And so this is, if you remember one thing from the, the message today, I pray this is the point that you remember. True faith is trusting God in our hearts by taking action in our days. True faith is trusting God in our hearts by taking action in our days. You see, God wants a relationship with us. He is a father who longs to spend time with his kids. I'm a father now of a 10-month-old. He's the cutest thing in the world. You can't tell me otherwise. I long to spend time with my son. I long. He doesn't even really do anything. He kind of rolls around and crawls and, I mean, he... He has dirty diapers, and he doesn't really do anything for me, but I stink and love it. It is the greatest thing ever. 
how much more so does a perfect father long to be with us? And there's a quote from Thomas Aquinas. He's a scholar, a saint from the 1600s. He said, if you sum up the Bible in four words, it's the father loves you. The whole Bible in four words, the father loves you. This is a love letter from a father who wants his kids back. Really, really, really bad. So bad that he would actually send his own son. I would never give up Cade for anything, my own son. But God sent his own son to take our place to make a way to him as a father because we messed it up in the beginning, but he still rectified it and made it right in the end. God is a father who loves us. In the church, so often, and this is, I heard a pastor from California say this, so often we want people to behave to then believe, to then belong. But the gospel is opposite of that. You know whose you are, where you belong first, and out of that, you begin to believe, and out of that, you begin to behave. See, God is not after behavior modification, he's after heart transformation. And we have to understand that, we have to know whose we are, and Abraham right here, it said he was a friend of God, he knew who he was. I believe, this is not in the scripture, this is my opinion, this is not fact. I believe Abraham had so much faith that if he would have killed his son Isaac, God could have raised him back from the dead. I fully believe that. I fully believe Abraham thought God could do anything. So I'll give him my son, he can bring him back. Not a big deal. And he did do that, right? Later on for us and our sins. So much faith, but it came out of a trust. And so our belief must move from just knowing God is out there to trusting who he is. God says he is good. He says he's compassionate. He says he's gracious. He says he's merciful. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. All these things are God talking about himself as a good, good father. And the only way we will learn and know these things in our heart is if we spend time with him and let him tell us how great he is. We can't just infuse that in our brain. It has to go here into our heart. A lot of you heard me say this, but the farthest distance traveled is from our head to our heart. This is the longest journey we ever take in our life. It takes forever sometimes. But when it does, man, there's a trust like Abraham's. So then in verse 25, I love that James gives us this example too about Rahab. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. So we talked about Abraham, a man of faith, but now we're talking about Rahab, a prostitute. She lived in the city of Jericho when the Israelites were coming to take the city. They sent some spies into Jericho, and she actually harbored these spies and helped them out. And the king of Jericho comes, and he says, hey, where are the men that came to visit you? She says, the men did come here, but they left. And I think if you leave now, you might be able to catch them. So his messengers leave, and they try to catch the men. Little did they know they're up on the roof hiding underneath some things that she laid out for them. So she's protecting God's men, showing her belief that God is truly who he says he is. And her faith is still being talked about right now in this message. So Rahab, a prostitute, not living for God like Abraham maybe was, but we know that God, James, throughout scripture, read about it a couple times, she has a heart of faith, true faith. And this is why Rahab took a risk. 
So that statement I made, true faith is trusting God in our hearts by taking action in our days. You could also phrase it this way, true faith is trusting God in our hearts by taking risks in our days. I don't know when the last time you guys took a risk was, but it's kind of frightening, right? You're afraid that you might not make it or someone might be rubbed the wrong way. Rahab here, she had the choice in this story I just described to either make a decision out of fear and say, yeah, they're up on my roof, take them and spare her own life, or to move in faith, and then out of that, she received blessing from God and is talked about even today. And every decision we make as Christians is either a result of faith or fear. Every decision is faith or fear. When I type in my GPS and I hit go in Atlanta because I'm allergic to the traffic and I need to get around it, I have faith that my GPS is going to lead me the right way, and that has not always happened. The other dynamic is interesting is that we can actually do the same action out of different motivations. I'll give you an example. Someone's getting married, right? They're getting married to someone because they are afraid that no one else out there would ever love them. This is the only person they could ever find. So they're settling and getting married to this person out of fear. We have another person getting married. They found this one person and they're the best person in the world and there's no one else out there for them because this is the best person that God has for them. Getting married out of faith. Same situation but different motivation. And we have to move from fear to faith. And that comes from what I mentioned earlier, knowing whose we are and spending time with him. So a lot of times we, we bottle down spending time with God to reading our Bible and praying. Both are very, very important. But sometimes, oftentimes, we need to break out of our box and find other ways to connect with God along with scripture and prayer. For me in college, I went and I shot hoops in the morning, sometimes before classes for about an hour. I put on worship music, I would shoot basketball, I would talk to God and pray. That was how I connected with God. For my wife, Callie, she would go on long drives and sing in the car at the top of her lungs. Hope I can share that, but I love that. And I've done that too. There's different ways that we connect with God, but we need to find ways to connect and spend time with him because that's the only way our hearts will turn into a heart of faith and that will lead to action in our days. Otherwise, we'll just be doing things for the sake of doing them and not doing them from a place of faith out of a heart of faith. So verse 26 wraps this all up. Michael, is that guitar not working, bro? You can just set it down, man. I appreciate it. The faith, though, that you brought to make that work, you're putting this into action, man. I'm sorry, this, the, the pedal has to be pressed, but it's all good, bro. I appreciate you, man. I saw everyone staring over there like, he's playing, but there's no sound coming out. So, as I close, verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. That word spirit in the Greek can be translated breath of life. So as the body is without a breath of life, so faith without deeds is dead. It's like a corpse. No use to it, right? So again, true faith is trusting God. That word is so important, trusting him. That's knowing who he is and then taking action as a result of that, okay? So I wanna give us a chance to respond. I know we don't have like the ambient music in the background that always helps when these moments happen. But... I really believe, at least for me this week, the Holy Spirit was really convicting me. Wes, you're a pastor. You say you love me, right? But when I tell you to go do something, you walk the other direction. What's up with that? I'm your father, right? You trust me. If I'm asking you to do something, 
I have your best interest in mind, so let's do it. And he was telling me, God, obeying my voice is always the best choice. Help me remember it, but obeying his voice is always the best choice.